Get ready for brilliant people, brilliant ideas, and a regular good time. This is Brilliant Thoughts with Success People editor Tristan Almada, the show that thinks about how personalities, relationships, and communication shape business success. And now here he is, Tristan Almada. My next guest is not only a best-selling author, an amazing speaker, and an OG podcaster. He's also a great storyteller, as you'll see in this podcast. He does all the jobs people do when they have an amazing perspective and want to share it with others. And as I learned here, which you will too, he does have an awesome perspective. I love the stories that he told, and I'm excited to share this one with you because I was listening in and taking notes and just, I felt like I was being told a story and I was pulled in. I hope you enjoy this one. Welcome back to another episode of Brilliant Thoughts, a success podcast. And I've got Jonathan Fields with me. If you don't know Jonathan, you're going to enjoy this conversation. I started your book, Jonathan. I haven't finished it, Sparked. And the title is Discover Your Unique Imprint for Work That make, Makes You Come Alive. So far, I'm enjoying it. I've got a lot of notes for you, some questions. Let's get right into it, man. Thanks for being on. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. All right. So what what sparked the idea behind the book? The book is really the outgrowth of a body of work, um, the seeds of which were planted about two decades ago. Um, a big part of it was actually 9-11. Um, being a lifelong New Yorker until fairly recently, I was living in the city, um, in Hell's Kitchen, New York, in Manhattan, married with a new home, a three-month-old baby, and had actually uh, signed signed a lease for a floor in a building for what I hoped would become um, one of the premier yoga centers um, in New York City the day before 9-11. Um, woke up the next day. And, uh, you know, as you can imagine, it was a devastating experience. Um, but, uh, you know, my mind went to two places. One, who did I know? Because every longtime New Yorker knew somebody. Um, and if you didn't, you knew their family. And And in fact, you know, there was somebody who I knew that worked in the top floor of one of the towers that never came home that night. And also, you know, I was really asking myself, well, am I really going to start a new company now in New York City um, when we didn't know if this was the first of something that would be much bigger and much more expensive? And in the best of times, you know, launching a new company, I'm not new to the business of entrepreneurship. You know, I've like, been fortunate to like, create a number of ventures myself. And even in the best circumstances, it's a really, really hard and uncertain thing. And I, it was a moment of really taking stock for me and, and realizing that, you know, not just my friend, but um, thousands of people never came home that day. They didn't go to work expecting not to come back home. Um, it really brought me back to this understanding that we have one pass through this thing called life. And to the extent that we can do it, in a way that brings joy and meaning and service and purpose um, and connection to that experience, why not actually invest everything we can in doing that? And given the fact that for most people, our work tends to make up the vast majority of our waking hours for our entire adult life, um, what would happen if we really focused on trying to optimize that, trying to make it as good as it can possibly be? And that moment planted the seeds for me that became a 
a bit of a casual exploration that slowly developed into a really focused pursuit that eventually formed into a quest with the launch of One Endeavor Good Life Project in 2012, which was a decade ago. And then it really started to focus in in the domain of work over the last five years or so. And I got really curious about whether there were a set of identifiable, mappable, universal impulses for work that gave us this feeling of coming alive. Because if we could identify them, and then if we could build tools that would help people discover what it is for them, and then make choices that are more aligned with the ability to do more of those things that fill them up and less of the things that empty them out, I thought that was a pretty a pretty important thing to lean into. And that led to uh, a whole series of things that I never saw coming. In 2018, we spent an entire year developing an assessment um, around these types. And, and I should probably say, yes, we actually were able to identify this. It turns out that there are 10 distinct impulses for work that make us come alive. Wrapped around each one of those impulses is a set of tendencies, behaviors, and preferences that form archetypes, kind of like the way that we move through the world. And I started calling them sparkotypes, really just because it was a fun way to shorthand, you know, the archetype for work that sparks you. And we built an assessment uh, to help people um, tease out what theirs are, and also in no small part to help us understand these on a higher level and validate them. Um, we release that to the world. And as we have this conversation, about 660,000 people have completed that assessment, generating over 33 million data points. Um, we're engaged in follow-on studies now showing really interesting correlations between doing the work of your sparkotype and flow and purpose and meaningfulness and energy and excitement and realized potential. And um, at some point, the body of work needed a much more in-depth guide um, something that would take you really deep into all 10 of these different types and understand yourself on a whole different level and also give you language, sort of common language, to help describe yourself to yourself and also to help share who you really are on a deeper level with other people, whether that's a partner in life, a friend, uh, a colleague, um, a leader, or people in an organization. And that was really sort of the, uh, that's the long version of the story that led to me writing the book sparked um, and sharing it with the world last year. That's a pretty amazing story. And I have a question because a lot of us, a lot of us were there at nine 11, right? Whether we're in California, like me, or you're in New York or wherever you were. And we all witnessed it. Some of us, it made a deeper impact as it did for you. What did you do? in your reflection that allowed you for, for that specific moment to change the trajectory of your life? Because a lot of us go through different, look at COVID, right? And all of us are still the same. What did you do to make sure that that impact lasted? Yeah, you know, it was more, I think, what was done to and through me than what I did proactively. Um, First, you know, like I actually, um, I think being in New York City, there was no way to sort of feel like this was happening in the background. You know, I think if you weren't in the immediate proximity of an event like this, it's horrifying, it's devastating. But in relatively short order, there are other things in your life that you start to divert your attention to. Living and being in New York City during that window and having been a like, longtime New Yorker before and after, 
there was, there was no moving away from it. There was no diverting your attention from it. There was nothing else but that. Um, and that one friend that I mentioned, um, who didn't come home, we found ourselves, I think the next day, driving out to their home um, and spending the day with his wife. Um, and then that evening, uh, when almost everyone else had left, it was just me, um, his wife, uh, who had, was, didn't know it at the time, but was a widow, and my wife and our three-month-old baby. And you know, the, we went upstairs to put her two kids, who were, I think, two and a half and nine months old at that time, to bed. And I walked up the stairs, and you know, my job was to read the two-and-a-half-year-old the story. And that would normally have been his dad who was doing that. And it was you know, just devastating because I knew that like, his dad was never going to walk in the door. I didn't know it 100% at that time, but we kind of all knew. And, and driving home you know, with my wife, it was just a very sobering moment. There was, there was no way. Like, so I didn't proactively say, you know, like, I'm going to do something about this. What I did was allowed myself to be completely present in the moment. I allowed myself to feel all the horror of it, but also to feel a sense of um, reality that, you know, we really do have one pass through. Um, and none of us has any guarantees. Like money doesn't buy you out of guarantees. Status doesn't buy you out of... Nothing buys you out of the truth that life is impermanent and we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring, right? And so many people who've been through not something like that, but profound health trauma um, know this very deeply. And it was more about allowing all of that in and not trying to just scaffold myself, not trying to shield myself, but feeling it all and allowing myself to be moved by the realization that it could have been me. Um, and I'm sitting here with my beautiful wife and my three-month-old daughter. Um, and it's important to the extent that I actually have the ability to control certain things in my life, and, and some I do and some I don't, to exercise that agency and see what I can make happen, you know? Um, and then it really became a process of inquiry. Like, what does that actually mean? At the time, um, the most immediate thing was the decision, do I go ahead and, you know, launch what, what was then, um, you know, intended to be a yoga center in New York City? Or do I walk away from the lease that I, I just signed? You know, like, I'm pretty sure I could have... If there was a real reason for me to be able to say, like, not going forward, we're shutting this down. Um, and I made the decision. I said, this is going to be really hard. I have no idea if it's going to succeed or fail. Um, and whatever plans for a joyful, you know, like launch and marketing and all of this stuff and celebration and promotion had to be radically re-engineered to meet the moment. But I said it was important for me to actually go ahead with this because we were about to commit to opening a a place where people could gather to be in community, in communion, for healing, for movement, for breath. Um, if you literally just came, lied on a mat, and cried for 90 minutes, that's what a lot of people did then. We sent people down to one of the piers, which was two blocks away from us in New York, which was a staging area for a lot of the relief workers, and just said, come. Like, don't pay money, just come. Come to a place where you can feel safe and you can breathe and you can close your eyes and whatever comes out, comes out. Um, so the first step really was just allowing myself to, to be fully present at the moment, to feel everything as horrible as it was and to somehow alchemize all of those feelings into 
the bravery that I thought it would take to go ahead and launch this thing that I thought might, you know, had, had the potential to financially tank my life and my family if the entire thing failed. But it felt like the thing I couldn't not do at the time also. So going through that and then fast forwarding to what happened to New York during COVID, how did you respond to that? And what position were you in then? Yeah, you know, it was very similar in weird ways. Um, you know, um, the entire city was devastated. Um, I had to make some big fast changes in our business or else it would have ended. So the central focus at that time, you know, Good Life Project launched in 2012. And, and it's, it's a, a company which, you know, centers around media um, for education, around community we gather, and then education. And um, we were really big advocates of in-person gathering. And also for the entire history of the podcast, part of our production ethos was we only um, record conversations in person in our own studio in New York City. So in relatively short order, because you know, like folks I'm sure remember that New York City um, was the place where everything just went south really fast in the most horrifying way at the peak of what was going on. You know, in March or April in New York City, nearly a thousand people a day were dying in New York alone. Um, and we didn't know what we know about you know, like everything now. And it was an absolutely terrifying place. We felt completely cloistered. I was terrified for the health of me, my friends, my family, my community. And at the same time, similar thing, you know, we have a business and we produce media and we affect a lot of people in the world. And how do we keep that going in a way that we can be of service? And I can sort of let my maker Jones run wild at the same time so I can be fully expressed um, and do it radically differently. So the last person that actually we produced in person was Macy Gray, who um, came off the stage at the Beacon Theater the night before. Um, we were three blocks away from the Beacon Theater in New York City. Um, came into the studio the next morning. We were all kind of hesitant, like, is this okay? Is this not okay? Should we be doing this? Should we be not? She was wearing gloves the whole time and because everyone was terrified of touching anything. We closed the door, recorded a conversation. She walked out, and we never produced another in-person episode. And, you know, it was either about do we shut the entire thing down or do we challenge all of our assumptions about the mandate to only do this in person and see if we can actually reimagine our entire production process. Can we reimagine a way to create the container that, that has a similar level of psychological safety and intimacy in a digital realm um, that would allow the conversations to go deep the way that they did in person in the studio? I didn't know if it was possible. Um, I probably doubted that it was, to be honest with you, and I didn't know what the future of the show would be. Um, but we tried it, and we kept trying different things and different things and different things. And in fact, I was surprised. I was surprised at how we were able to create remarkably um, compelling and open and honest and vulnerable conversations, similar to what you know you do. Um, and but it but it was it, it was new to me, and I think also you know. We're having this conversation, you know, like two years or so after that moment in New York for me. And the world has completely rewired the way that it thinks about 
remote and virtual and digital now. But back then, it you know, like there was a massive, massive global learning curve that needed to happen. So we were all fumbling in the dark. Um, but we did it. And um, same thing, you know, the, at the end of the day, it was like, we're doing really good work. We've built something for years that is deeply meaningful to me that allows me to express parts of myself that I really need to express where we have a wonderful team that I want to keep supporting and creating a product, a service, an experience that's moving the needle in people's lives. Um, so it was worth it to keep trying and saying yes and see what happened. Um, there is one other thing that happened as part of that, which is when we hit September of that year and we realized that we're actually figuring out a remote production schedule and we also realized that New York was going to be potentially in a very devastating place for a while, um, we decided to step out for a bit and go out to Boulder, Colorado. And um, what started as, let's just take two months to be able to get some fresh air, walk around in the mountains and enjoy a different thing, and then eventually we'll come back, turned into five months and then nine months. And now as I have this conversation with you today, you know, I'm in a house in Boulder, Colorado, and this is very likely the place that we'll be for the next season of our lives. So there's, I, I'm a huge believer that there's no such thing as disruption without possibility. They're two sides of the same coin. You cannot have one without the other. So if you're feeling profoundly disrupted, you know, like to me, I've sort of trained my brain to say like the more disruptive I feel, the more possibility is existing. And if I don't see it right now, if I don't feel it, part of my job then becomes to seek it. Like, where is it? Because I know it exists because it cannot um, be absent in the presence of high levels of disruption or uncertainty. It, it is going to be there in proportion too. The bigger the disruption, the higher the uncertainty, the higher the stakes, the bigger the possibility. So... Um, you know, like, I think because I tend to wear that lens, I see that lens, you know, I see the world through that lens, it, um, it allows me to start to reframe moments um, and become a bit of a possibility hunter. How did you get to be able to function that way? What, what have you put in place in your life that has allowed you to create those habits to think that way? Because a lot of us see problems, and that's all we see. Yeah, um, and I see a lot of problems too. Um, but the the maker in me sees a problem. I'm like, okay, so like, what 29 fixes can I come up with this that then I can create and make manifest in the world? But the the bigger you ask me about what you know, like what practices or routines or rituals or habits do I have? And there are there are some that have been that I do attribute to a lot of this. Um, the central one is a mindfulness meditation practice, which has then become, you know, you don't, you don't practice meditation so that you can become better at meditating. You practice meditation so that you can become better at living and find equanimity when uh, the world tends to, you know, like become really topsy-turvy. Um, I came to meditation, interestingly enough. So I taught yoga in New York City for seven years and I taught meditation and I taught breath, pranayama for seven years. And one of my dirty little secrets was that I couldn't meditate to save my life. Um, I always found meditation through movement. I found that meditative state through movement, whether it was yoga, whether it was mountain biking, whether it was rock climbing and gymnastics as a kid. But I was never able to really comfortably sit and have a sitting practice. And I always just told myself that 
it's okay because like my move, my meditation is movement and that kind of does the exact same thing. And it does create a lot of overlapping experiences and like a lot of uh, studies now show that they do similar things to your brain. But what's different I realized over time is that a sitting practice um, trains you in a much more intense focus way um, because when you're, when you find that, that place through movement, it's generally because the nature of the movement itself requires you to be um, psychologically present to it. It demands your attention just by the fundamental nature of what you're doing. Sitting doesn't, which means that you actually have to proactively harness your attention, which is a radically different animal. It's also the skill set that allows you to take control of your life on a profoundly different level. So what brought me back to that practice? I've had that practice in my life. I start every morning with it for about a dozen years now. I did not come back to it willfully. Um, I have something called tinnitus or tinnitus, depending on who you ask, how you pronounce it, which means that there's a sound that my brain generates in my head 24-7. It's a high-pitched, very loud sound. Um, It is, for some people, absolutely devastating. It destroys their lives. Um, many people have it. Um, it's, I believe still at this point, potentially the number one, um, cause of, um, not retirement, but of, uh, blanking on the word, basically, um, when you retire from the military because you can't really function anymore. Um, because one of the reasons people get is because of percussive noises. We don't know where mine came from, but I started to have this in my head in March of 2012, actually, you know, 2010. And um, it was destroying me. It was absolutely destroying me. Um, I was working on a book called Uncertainty at the time, which was researching and writing about how people handle uncertainty. So fate, right? And I was in this state of ultimate uncertainty. Like I had this horrible noise that is pounding through my head 24-7. I can't not think about it. You know, It's like telling somebody, like, don't think about the elephant in the middle of the room. That's all you can think about. It consumes you. And I was like, I can't think. I can't write. I can't do anything. I can't sleep because when the din of the city fell away, I was surrounded by sound. So I started trying to figure out, well, you know, what do I do to make it go away? And about three, four months passed and I realized that, you know, this may never go away. And then I I changed the question. And part of this is probably from sort of a a deep dive into Eastern philosophy and tradition for me that had preceded it. And I started to ask a question, which is, if this is me for life, what then? Right? And there were some, there were some dark answers to that. Um, but then I, you know, like that my brain said, okay, so how is there a way that I can actually be okay with this? And what would that look like? Like, how do I make that happen if it's possible? So I started to research everything. And I, when researching actually how people handle high level of pain, um, which with an uncertain cause and uncertain end, if ever, um, that mindfulness actually can be incredibly helpful. Even if the pain never goes away, it changes the way you process. And I start to realize that pain actually, um, and that includes emotional suffering, um, is one part stimulus or circumstance and one part how your brain processes it. And I said, if I can't change the stimulus, if, if for some reason my brain is going to keep doing this for the rest of my life, can I rewire the way that my brain processes it? Because 
I hear noise all day, every day living in New York City, and I could care less about it. It's like it's not there for me. But for some reason, this is is dropping me to my knees on a daily basis. So um, I started to develop my own sort of like blended mindfulness, breathing um, practice. And the I actually went to um, and if I'm going too long, stop me because it's- Dude, I, I'm, I'm, I'm so into the story. Okay. So here's what happens. So, um, so I start researching, like who can teach me about this? And I know about meditation. I know about mindfulness because I've been preaching it for a long time, even though I've struggled doing it myself. Um, I find five blocks from me, a mindfulness-based cognitive behavioral therapist who's also a former rock drummer who has tinnitus. I, to this day, I can't remember how I found him, but I did. I make an appointment. I show up in his office. I'm like, can this work? He's like, yes. I'm not saying it will work. I'm saying it can work. I said, so what do I do? And he said, look, you more than anyone know the instructions. Like, you, you know this stuff. He said, but there's one thing. There's a part of the instruction that's kind of that may be kind of brutal that you're going to have to try and follow, which is a lot of meditation instruction says that you know, start by focusing on your breath, make that the anchor for your attention. But then if something keeps intruding over and over and over and over for at least that moment, that session, allow that thing to become the anchor for your attention. So he said, what's going to happen is you're going to sit, you're going to take a half a second to try and focus on your breath. And then all you're going to think about is the sound. And what you're going to want to try and do is allow the sound that, that you have literally spent every waking hour trying not to hear to become the center of your awareness, to just completely immerse yourself in it, to explore it, to let it become everything to you. And I said, that sounds terrifying. He's like, yeah. Um, But that's essentially what you do. So I went home that night and I sat down and um, I was actually sitting next to this old cash iron radio, which so many apartments in New York City have. there's a little bit of a hiss coming out of it, which actually helped just very slightly mask the sound in my head. And there was the warmth of the heat, like this cast iron, like pouring into my back. And I sat on a meditation cushion and I started thinking about my breath and instantly I couldn't. So then I tried this thing and I say, let me let the sound be everything. And within seconds, I'm like, it's causing so much anxiety, just like going all into the sound that I'm almost shaking. So I let it go for a minute. Then I go back to breathing exercises that I you know, like know and have been trained in from yoga to downregulate my nervous system to come back to a place of calm. And then I go back to the meditation. And then I go back to the sound. And I just start cycling through this thing and cycling through until over like a period of time, I'm developing my own practice, I don't realize, of like doing this mindfulness, allowing the anchor in. And then it's almost like exposure therapy at the same time. And then using breathing or exercises or pranayama is the Sanskrit name for that to bring my system back to a place of equanimity when I start to get a little bit too anxious or agitated and then go in again and again and again and again. Months pass doing this exact same thing. I'm committed to doing this every day even though I have no idea it works. And one day I'm sitting there and I realize my mind has actually organically drifted away from the sound. And that becomes a profound moment for me because I'm trying to focus it on the sound right now and I can't. 
I literally can't hold it there. And that becomes a moment where I realize, oh, wow, like things are changing. I have within me the capacity to let go of this, to let it be, you know, if it never goes away, just something that's in the background, just like all the other sounds, just like all the other sensations that I feel a million times a day, every day. And to this day, I sustain my practice in no small part because the sound is still with me. And I know that on any given day, like if I look for it, it's right there. If I don't look for it, I've sort of like habituated and trained my brain at a point where it doesn't intrude in any meaningful way in my life anymore. It's just like all the other stuff. So as I have this conversation with you, you know, like your producer asked me to put on my headphones before we did this, um, which is, which is cool. Like I live in headphones a lot of the time because you know, like I produce as well. When I do that, it basically, you know, it cuts out a lot of external sounds, which means if I go and look for the sound in my head, it presents as being substantially louder right now. And I'm fine with that. You know, to me, it's just another thing, another thing that is entering my system. There's nothing wrong with it, which is a really long way of saying the reason that I came back to my mindfulness practice was that 12 years later, the reason that I stay with it is very likely in my mind because this thing is with me. And I know still to this day, you know, like I, there's a, an embodied understanding of what potentially happens to me when I let my practice go. Um, and it keeps me okay. That said, you know, after a year or two, a couple of years, not only does this practice of mindfulness bring me back to just baseline being okay with the sound in my head, it's now become this really stunning experience in my life because, you know, mindfulness in particular, it trains you to focus your attention. Um, it trains you to be aware of your, where your attention at any given moment in time. So that we call that meta attention or meta awareness. And then it trains you in dropping um, any focus of attention that you don't see as constructive, but just letting it go and non-grasping. Those three skills are astonishingly valuable in everything that you do in life. So when you move into a moment where, you know, like there's a lot of spinning, there's a lot of groundlessness, the stakes are high, there's a lot coming at you, you know, and we may have a tendency to just be like, okay, doom and gloom scenario, let me like play that out in my head and then going to hit spin and never let it go and let it sort of like turn me into this sort of like big bundle of anxious, obsessive anxiety, which so many of us do. And granted, I go there sometimes. But I tend to catch myself way earlier and I don't go nearly as deep into that. And I come back to center because that meta attention kicks in. I kind of zoom the lens out. I'm like, what's actually happening here? It's like, oh, I'm actually creating a story about a circumstance that I can't change. And the circumstance itself is tough. But the story that I'm creating about it is actually where most of the suffering is coming from right now. So I may not be able to change the circumstance in the moment, but what the practice allows me to do is notice when I'm telling a destructive story, notice when I'm in a spin cycle, and then make much more mindful and intentional choices about stepping out of that spin cycle and telling a different story. That, that is something that all entrepreneurs need to listen into because we all have that challenge, right? So question for you then, when it comes to that, you, you're talking about the 10 spark types. Can you go over those? Because I know that we can incorporate that into your mindfulness here. 
Yeah, sure. So, you know, when it came time to develop and to identify, they're not mine. Like these exist in human nature. Um, it, it was a matter of sort of like really pattern recognition, identifying. So identify these 10 different impulses for effort that makes us come alive. And I'll walk you through them pretty quickly. Um, we start with the maven. The impulse for the maven is knowledge acquisition. It's all about learning. You're the person who's just like all about fascination. I want to learn everything about everything. Sometimes shows up narrow and deep, sometimes wide and broad, sometimes some blend of all of those. Behind that, we have the maker. The maker's impulse is to make ideas manifest. This is a fiercely generative impulse. This is my, what we call primary sparkotype. It is my strongest impulse for effort that gives me that feeling of being alive. Behind the maker, we have the scientist. And the impulse for the scientist is to figure things out. It's about burning questions, puzzles, uh, problems. The, generally, the deeper, the thornier, the more complex, the better, because they get to go and stay deep in that place. Behind the scientist, we have the essentialist. The impulse of the essentialist is all about creating order out of chaos. It's about clarity and utility, very often systems and processes. The essentialist often shows itself really young in kids because they clean their rooms at like the age of six or they order their stuffed animals like next to their bed, you know? And so because of that, it's also often praised um, because, you know, it shows up as like really like, you know, like positive behavior. Um, behind the essentialist, we have the performer. Now, the performer is all about energizing, animating, enlivening, a moment experience, interaction. This is often channeled into performing arts as a kid, but then stifled once that kid becomes an adult because parents get afraid that, well, whoa, like if my kid is going to be a performing artist, I'm really afraid about them being able to sustain themselves in the world. It's a tough life not realizing that that impulse may get channeled into performing arts as a kid, but it has incredible applications across all domains of work as an adult. I mean, take that impulse to a business development meeting, to a sales call, to an engagement with a client, to a boardroom, to a training uh, experience, to like a, a stage. You know, it doesn't have to be to uh, behind a bar, a bartender. You know, it's, it is about changing the nature of the container when you're interacting with other people. Behind that, we have uh, the warrior. The warrior is all about gathering together, um, organizing people into a coherent unit and leading. There's a ferocity to the warrior, which is where the name comes from, actually. It's, it's not about dominance. It is about fierce love, fierce devotion, fierce protection, fierce vision. Um, whenever you bring a group of people together, that means that at the same time you are saying yes to playing a role of helping people navigate complex social dynamics, friendship, power, all these different things. That is a huge, huge challenge. So I know that you're like a huge proponent of all of us stepping into a leadership role. I know that's part of your philosophy. Um, we're not talking about the skill of leadership here. Anyone can learn the skill of leadership, right? You can actually become very skilled at it. We're talking about a deeper innate impulse that wakes you up in the morning and says, I'm going to gather everyone together and take them from point A to point B simply because of the feeling that it gives me to do that. Whether you get to point B or not, it's always a nice to have when you actually do it, but it's, it's the experience of doing it in service of others that really wakes you up in the morning. Behind the, the uh, um, warrior, we have the sage. So the sage is all about awakening insight. 
It's about the process of illumination. So the sage may spend a lot of time learning, but in fact, when the sage is devoting themselves to learning, unlike a maven, they're actually learning for the purpose of turning around and then sharing what they know. So they may be really encyclopedic about things, but they do it largely because they love sharing. They love seeing the light bulbs go on in other people's minds, hearts, and, and lives. After that, so we're getting down to the final three here, if I have the count right, um, we have the advisor. Um, and the impulse of the advisor is to create a container of safety and trust and guide others through a process of growth. The advisor, unlike the warrior, usually operates from the outside in. They're not one of that community or one of the group or one of the team or one of the organization. They operate and they walk beside an individual or a group or community. Um, and what's interesting is most advisors will tell you that people have been coming to me and asking for my opinion, asking for advice. I'm the one that everyone always comes to for advice my whole life. What we know about advisors is actually the highest level of playing the role of an advisor is when you stop giving answers. And you actually devote yourself to becoming masterful at creating psychological safety, creating the social dynamic and the container needed for people to be open and vulnerable, and then really get knowledgeable about how to develop frameworks and understand how to create prompts and conversations that will guide a person through a process of revelation and awakening and growth, where a lot of what happens there is actually coming from them. You're creating the container and the frameworks and the prompts the revelations are coming from the inside out. And when that happens, they have buy-in and they, they will take action on it on a way where if you just gave them the answer, they never would. So we're coming down to the final two here. We have the advocate. The impulse for the advocate is to champion ideas, ideals, individuals, maybe entire communities or beings. So this is a person who sees something and feels that the fact that it is not getting centered, it's not getting talked about, it's not getting attention or the light of day or things done in response to it, there's almost a sense of injustice around it. Um, and they can't stay quiet. you know. And this may be about an idea. It may be about a social issue or a cause. They may be connected to an individual and just say, like, we're sitting around a conference table and there's a person who's over in the corner who I know is a quieter person who's uncomfortable sharing what they know, but I also had a conversation with them before and they have a fantastic idea. And they're not serving it up. It's not being centered. And that's not okay. So I want to play the role of helping. Helping facilitate the shining of the light, the centering of this idea because it's valuable and it matters. Or it could be like going out into the world and becoming a powerful advocate for a huge social issue. It's an incredibly powerful impulse and it is almost impossible to stifle without causing real suffering because it tends to be so intense. And that brings us to the final one, which is the nurturer. And the impulse of the nurturer is to elevate others, is to lift them up. It tends to be a deeply empathic impulse where you literally feel the feelings of other people and you feel compelled to step into a role of giving care or taking care, often when others either won't or can't. So all 10 of those different sparkotypes, they also exist on a spectrum where on the one side, so I, and I share them in a very particular order, the first batch that I shared with you are very heavily process-oriented. You know, the maven, you completely fulfilled by just being able to immerse yourself without impedance into the process of learning and discovery. Same thing with the maker. Like, I just want to be allowed to just do everything, to lose myself in the process of creation. Then you go all the way to the other side of the spectrum, like the advocate and the nurturer, the last two I shared with you. 
they lie all the way on the service-satisfied side of the spectrum. So they tend to care a lot less about process. It's all about service. You know, how can I actually immediately interact with other beings and be of service to them? And then it's sort of like a range in the middle. And it's important to know that because they also um, decompensate or overload in different ways. So process-driven sparkotypes, when they go on overload, they tend to um, fall into obsession. Service-driven sparkotypes, when they're going overload, they fall into depletion. Um, so they sort of, you treat those differently. So that's sort of like the overview of all 10 types. I love that, man. I took a lot of notes there. So do you find that like with, with some tests that are similar, because uh, I, I took your test and I loved it, by the way. It's like in, in sections of, of, I think it was like six, right? And do you find that uh, people are a combination of a few of them more often than just one central that yeah. takes over? But yeah, of course. So um, when you take the spark type assessment, and that's just freely available for everybody right now, by the way, um, you'll learn three things. Um, we call it your spark type profile. Um, you'll learn your primary spark type. And we look at that as this is your strongest impulse for effort or for work that makes you come alive. And I keep saying effort and work interchangeably, by the way, because this may be work in the context of your job. It also may be the thing that's your primary role. Maybe you're a parent or a caretaker. It may be a thing that you volunteer or do on the side. It may be a club or activity. Any way you invest effort, these things come into play. So your primary is your strongest impulse. When you do it, you get that feeling of coming alive. Your shadow, or you can substitute secondary if you want that. It's sort of like your runner-up, your next strongest impulse. It also often is work that we like, we're good at doing, but we also do it in no small part because it lets us do the work of our primary at a higher level. And then on the far opposite side, we have what we call your anti-sparkotype. And this is the work that tends to be the heaviest lift for you, that takes the most out of you, even if objectively it doesn't seem that hard to others that tends to require the greatest amount of recovery and the greatest external motivation to get you to do it in the first place. That doesn't mean that you don't have to do it, by the way. Oftentimes, like a part of any job requires us to do some of the work that ends up falling in the work of our anti-sparkotype. But the more that we can actually delegate out or opt out or somehow engineer what we're doing so we're not, that doesn't become the sort of central thing that we're doing, um, the better we tend to feel along the way. So those are the three elements that you learn when you complete the assessment. And that, by the way, doesn't mean that you don't have any of the other things in you. We just sort of like, we found that it's most useful to identify that the impulses, the sort of the strongest impulses on both ends of the spectrum, because that makes what we do, that makes what you learn more actionable rather than um, just getting a whole bunch of different information that ends up dropping you into a paradox of choice. The, the two driving metrics for this entire body of work are accuracy, is it accurate? And utility, is it useful? So we make a lot of our decisions around those two things. Got it. And for those of you listening in, go to sparktype.com forward slash spark test. Yeah, or even just sparkotype.com will get you there. Um, Love that, man. And so take the test. It's fun. Just sit down for a few minutes. And, and it's really, so how do we use this test after we get it, Jonathan? Yeah, that is the single biggest question. Um, and, and we've been sort of, figuring out how to support people in different ways through certifying advisors to actually help people one-on-one out in the world to working with some of the largest organizations in the world, actually. So 
on an individual level, you know, like once you learn these things, you're equipped to actually you know, like do two things. One, you can reflect back and, and really understand in a very different way the work experiences that you've had in the past, why some have worked really well, why some have been absolutely awful, because you'll see alignment and conflict with these impulses that you have. And then looking forward, you know, you can start to say, okay, so how do I either reimagine the thing that I'm doing now so that I can do more of the stuff that fills me up that I actually know what it is and less of what empties me out? Or if you're somebody who's actually saying, you know, I kind of, I'm ready for a bigger change. Um, how do I assess new opportunities? How do I understand if they're actually going to give me what I want and need? And the sparkotype, of course, there are other really important metrics, like, you know, like all the baseline stuff, like money and benefits and all that other stuff. But when we get into sort of like your day-to-day -day experience of the work, whether it is going to offer you the opportunity to do the work of your primary shadow sparkotype in a, in a meaningful way or not is a really big factor, you know, in that decision-making process. And then for organizations, like a lot of things that we're working at at scale there is how do we, how do we type, tap these things in a leadership context, you know? What happens if a leader understands this about themselves and then they can actually step into a leadership role informed by their sparkotype? So, you know, if I am a sage and I'm in a leadership role, my mode of leading may actually center teaching, like sharing, like really letting everybody on my team be deeply informed, which gives them a lot of self-reliance and autonomy and competence. If my you know, like primary sparkotype is the nurturer and I'm in a leadership role, then the central mode of leadership for me might be really tapping into the psychological and emotional states of those on my team to understand what they're going through, how they're feeling, to get a real beat on where they're struggling and where they're thriving, and then to let them really know that they're seen and that they're held and that they're embraced and acknowledged, and then have conversations that allow them to move through often challenging moments. So it's a really powerful tool in the context of informing how people lead. Because we can all, as, as, as you, you know, like offer, um, step into leadership roles. But this helps really explain, well, beyond the basic skills of leadership, how do I lead in a way that allows this impulse to come through and that also allows me to, to sort of like be experienced as my most authentic, energized self by those I lead and at the same time be most effective at what I do because I'm literally doing the thing that I feel put on the planet to do. Um, so it's really interesting to see how that's unfolding. And then we also train leaders on how to have sparked conversations with their team um, so that they can actually get to know each other on a whole different level with a new language that allows just for really profound levels of empathy and understanding. So it's, it's, it's been really amazing to sort of like see how the body of work is having ripples both on an individual level and then at scale within organizations. I love this, man. Is there... Are there maybe two that you always find are are always together? Like let's say sage and warrior or maker and yeah. advocate or something. What, what do you find are the ones that gravitate to being the same? So it's interesting because we, we do have such a large data set now. It's like, I think around 33 million data points at this point. And, and it is growing by it is growing at lightning speed because thousands more people are completing the assessment literally every week. Um, and actually at the end of the book in the appendix, appendix we put um, what we call prevalence charts where you can literally see like all of the pairings for primary and shadow and the prevalence like in within the population of people who've completed the assessment. 
And we do see definite clusters. You know, like you'll see um, Sage and Maven is one that we see often, or Maven and Advisor. And a lot of these make sense, right? Because Sage Maven makes a lot of sense because it's really hard to teach something if you don't know something. <laughs> you know, so we do see some really interesting clusters. But at the same time, um, there's really interesting just representation across the board. I love that. Do you ever find that, because when you were saying warrior, I was thinking uh, that organized and lead, kind of that fierce love. I was thinking of my mother. I was like, mm. I find that women have this innate sense to create communities and empower each other more than men from what I've seen. And I was, I was thinking, do you see that uh, certain uh, either men or women tend to gravitate to being one over the other, or do you not track that? Yeah. So we haven't tracked it in the data. We have a lot of anecdotal um, data around that. And we're actually, because you would think that you would, you know, based on just a lot of societal expectations and overlays and assumptions that you would see certain things match up on a gender basis. And we actually aren't really seeing that um, because the way that we're trying to tease these out is really sort of, um, by dissociating to a certain extent gender from the original assessment and from the way that the prompts land. And um, so we're actually not seeing um, a ton of that, but actually it, it's on our list of, we have a, um, a number of studies that we're looking to run um, later this year in 2022 and probably into 2023. Um, and we're looking at um, seeing if we can identify um, different relationships if they exist um, between the prevalence of different sparkotypes and different pairings um, and any gender identification. Um, so it, it'll require a, basically a whole new round of surveys uh, from us because we didn't gather that data in the original part, but we're sort of like moving into the evolution of the body of work now where we get much more detailed and much more nuanced. This is cool, man. All right, so what are you? What, what are you? Are you a sage, maven? I am a maker scientist. So my primary is maker. Yeah. Um, so I literally, from the time, as young as I can remember, I would open my eyes in the morning and I'm like, what can I create today? What can I make? Any opportunity I was given in school to make something instead of to write or to speak or anything like that, I would just make something. Um, when I was a little kid, I was I, I grew up in a water town outside of New York City and where we had like the classic old town dump and I would like I would beg my parents to open up the old Chevy Blazer and drive me down to the dump on a Sunday morning and I would throw all these random bike parts that had been discarded into the back of the car. We'd drive home and I'd get out the duct tape and just duct tape them into these Franken bikes and ride them around the neighborhood, you know, until it, in, inevitably I came home crying with skin knees because they didn't stay together that long. But um, fast forward, like years later, like I, I still love bikes and, and I learned to like really build bicycles and, um, and that's shown up as me, you know, like painting and, you know, like eventually building houses and renovating and building companies, building brands, building experiences, building books, building, you know, and producing media. It's all that impulse to create something from nothing. That is the thing that literally wakes me up in the morning. Um, and when I get to do that, I'm sort of the happiest person. Um, and a couple of years ago, I realized that I was actually missing a, a physical creation process because everything for me has become so digital. Um, so I took almost a month off and I spent the better part of that month driving out to rural Pennsylvania, 
to work in a partially renovated roadhouse that had been turned into a luthier or a guitar builder studio and learn from him side by side how to build an acoustic guitar just from raw wood. Um, working 13 hour days, like this is like, you know, like working with your body, it was labor. And I was re- ridiculously happy the whole time. I would blink and like we'd go down into the workshop at 8 a.m. I would blink. I would think it was time for a morning break and it was nine at night. You know, it was just you completely lost in flow the whole time. Um, and so like for me, not only is it do I know that the act of creation is sort of like central to what makes me come alive, but for me, the ultimate expression seems to be when I can actually engage in an act of creation that is a very physical um, act of creation, not just uh, like writing words or producing media or music or conversations and stuff like that. I love that too, but to me, the highest level of expression is when the process becomes physicalized. Nice, man. So I got the maker and the maven. Nice. And did that resonate with you? Oh, 100%. I was like, that's uh, pretty much pretty much right. That's kind of cool. Yeah, I it, love that. It's so cool to take. I sent it to my team too. So they're going to they're gonna probably take that as well. What kind of books do you typically gravitate to, to read? Uh, you know, a lot of different books. Um, I mean- because of the position that I'm in, because I'm I'm like recording and, and having so many conversations, like Good Life Project produces twice a week now. Um, you know, like I, I read a lot, a lot, a lot of books, we read a, a lot of authors, but I'm all over the place. Um, you know, when Joan Didion passed not too long ago, I realized that actually I was really not too deep into her canon. So I went out and I started getting, and I started reading her work and I'm like, how could I have not been obsessed with this woman's writing? It is breathtaking and wise and snarky and just... Um, so what's interesting is I read for two reasons now. One is because I just, like, I want to read and learn and be uplifted or inspired. The other is the maker in me. And because I'm a writer, um, a number of books into my writing career now, um, I read because I'm studying the craft and I want to read from some of the best writers in the world. Like, so when I read Didion, I'm reading like, you know, I want to read as a reader because that's, you know, like that's part of what you want to do. But at the same time, I'm reading as a student and I'm obsessing over every sentence. And I'm like, how did she write that sentence? Because like I've been doing this for 20 years now. It's going to take me another 20 years to maybe do a hackish version of that sentence. Um, But I'm, but I'm down for it, you know, um, so, so it's, for me, it's across the board. Um, I also love music, um, and I tend to really love uh, music and memoirs. Um, and we interview you know, like quite a number of musicians on our show. So, so that's, you know, that's super cool to um, just really be able to go deep into a memoir of you know, like somebody who maybe as a kid you know, was an icon to me. Like I sit down with Peter Frant, and I'm like, I'm actually sitting down with Peter Frant and you know, like having this conversation. You know, when I was a kid, I'm looking at him shirtless on the cover of Rolling Stone in this famous Scavulo shot um, and reading like the feature article written by Cameron Crowe, like a very young Cameron Crowe. And now we're hanging out, having this beautiful conversation. Um, so I, I, I tend to really enjoy mu- musicians and their stories because they, they're, they're a lot less protected. Um, you know, musicians are supposed to live lives. They don't have these sort of like pristine brands that they're really invested in protecting. 
so they tend to be much more open and real and they they tend to have like really lived lives <laughs> love that man well jonathan thank you so much for being on this was i i love the stories from the very beginning you had my attention so thank you for being a great storyteller and then for ending up with these 10 items here that I hope everybody goes and visits the website and just figures out what you are because um, now I have to figure out what my, I didn't send it to my wife, Jonathan. Now I have to find out what my wife is. That's going to be fun. Yeah. Thank you, Jonathan. Where do we find you? We want to know more about you and what you do. Yeah. So I'm basically at Jonathan Fields everywhere you could imagine. Um, And uh, the, the, Two different podcasts are Good Life Project and Spark. You can find them on every podcast player basically you ever want to see. And from any of those places, you'll you'll be able to track me in all the different ways. I love it. Well, thanks for being on, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Those are all the brilliant thoughts that we have for you today. If you like what you're hearing, drop us a review or just tell your friends. This has been a success podcast. Head to success.com slash podcast to hear more just like it.